Some of you may be familiar with the singer-songwriter Jason Gray. He has a song on a Christmas album of his from just a few years ago called Rest, the song of the innkeeper. It's a very interesting perspective that this song gives um, on this gentleman there in, in the midst of our, well, he's the, the one who's not, he never is there in the nativity scenes, right? There, there, is, there is no uh, innkeeper, uh, to be sure. Well, here, let me read to you some of these lyrics uh, from this song. I found them standing in my door in the clumsy silence of the poor. I've got no time for precious things, but at least they won't be wandering if they're sleeping on my stable floor. There were no rooms to rent tonight. The only empty bed is mine because I'm overbooked and overrun with so many things that must be done until I'm numb and running blind. And here's the chorus, or at least the first of the choruses. I need rest. I need rest. Lost inside a forest of a million trees trying to find my way back to me. I need rest. I'm going to skip over a few stanzas. And here's the the last one uh, from this song. Tonight I can't get any sleep with those shepherds shouting in the streets. A star is shining much too bright. Somewhere I hear a baby cry. And all I want is a little peace. Now, you, you hear the irony in, in that. It's thicker than your Aunt Bertha's fruitcake. And I have a suspicion that no few of us here in this, in this room could sympathize with this man. Restless, downbeat looking for a rest, a deeper rest. We need to slow down. Now, I'll say, you know, specifically this time of year, we need to slow down. But that's actually true the rest of the year as well. If you've got a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Isaiah. Uh, We are, again, as I said last week, we're out right now of our series in the Gospel of Matthew. We are This uh, Advent series is Advent Through the Eyes of Isaiah. So again, if you've got a Bible, turn to the book of Isaiah. Uh, If you've got that in print, then you're just trying to find it, just open it up. Psalms is right in the middle, head a few books to the right. Isaiah is a big one. Uh, And we're in chapter 43. Uh, Isaiah chapter, whoops, chapter 43. I'm going to read verses 14 through 21. Isaiah 43, verses 14 through 21. Hear now God's word. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, Army and warrior, they lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. 
Let's pray for a moment. Lord, we ask that you would help us indeed to see something more of what Isaiah was speaking of, who he is speaking of here. Uh, the events on the immediate horizon for him, but also the things that he was pointing toward, towards on the farther horizon. The Messiah, the Christ, the kingdom, and its coming. This has great relevance for us, every one of us here. We pray that you please, please dig ears such that we could hear. Without that, we cannot. Uh, our, our hearts simply do not beat in rhythm with yours. And so we ask that you would, would do something, do something miraculous here, even within us, even within this time. As we've gathered here on this second Sunday of Advent, and we are looking into the prophet Isaiah's words, and we pray in your name. Amen. To behold. To behold. Now, that, that's a word, no doubt, no few of us, maybe even all of us, could give some rough definition of, even if we hardly ever use the word. I mean, I, I dare guess, probably no one in this room used the word behold in the last several days in, in just common speech. But we all know something of what, what it means. It means to, to look and, and examine. It means to see and to consider, uh, rather than just a quick casual glance, it, it has the sense of, of looking deeply into something, peering deeply into something to behold. Why? Why would that be necessary? Because we recognize, or someone that's speaking to us recognizes, perhaps, as they're saying, behold, that things are off. That things are, are, are off. Our course is, is off. There's Something in the formula we haven't accounted for. The equation is, is, is whacked. It's, it's out of, of, of whack. And so we need to behold, or if I can just tweak the, the song, we're dashing through the snow in our one-horse open sleigh, sliding into the curve we go to a quick and awful grave. Yeah, I know it's cheery, but that, it, with that, you need to behold. There's a need to behold. And, and in the Bible, in the scriptures, what you see is again and again the call to behold, oftentimes in connection with the Lord's initiative, his moving towards his people, having done something, having shown something, revealed something, something he hasn't done before, something he hasn't shown before. And so there's this call there into behold, because there's a newness of something that, that has Transpired. Well, that takes us right into our, our text here this morning. What Isaiah is telling us is the Lord is doing a new thing, and it is something to behold. The Lord is doing, in Jesus more specifically, the Lord is doing a new thing, and it is truly, deeply, profoundly something for us to behold. Well, what would that be? What is this, this new thing, and what would it mean for us to behold? Well, there's at least three parts to this. Is there in your outline? They're in the bulletin. The newness of this thing is the, is the demonstration, at least partly, the demonstration of his greater power. That's the first thing. 
the, the second thing being the revelation of our greater need. And then thirdly, the affirmation of his greater purposes. Now, I say greater with every one of those because there's, there's a newness, again, to what Isaiah is saying here beyond anything that has been said or shown before has come in Jesus, and therein we need to behold, to behold this. Now let's uh, take a look at this text then. So Isaiah 43, it's, a, it's a, at least partly a demonstration. What Isaiah is speaking of here is a demonstration of the Lord's greater power. Now, he's speaking, of course, this is in the context of Isaiah. He's, he's an, as a Jewish man. He's speaking to the nation of Israel, specifically to the, to the nation of Judah, the southern tribe of Judah at the time. Uh, this is a people who not only, he's not only talking about their future, but he's talking about their past, and he's hearkening back to their past, a past that was very much formed and informed by the pattern and the paradigm of Exodus. It's deeply, profoundly interwoven into their, their identity. That is to say, Exodus, a deliverance from bondage into freedom. A deliverance from bondage into freedom. And, and Isaiah has three experiences of Exodus in mind here in this text. One of which has already happened, one, a second of which is on the near horizon, relatively speaking, and the third of which is on a further horizon. And the first two are pointing to the third. And we can understand more of the third even as we look back on the first two. So the first of the, the, the pattern, and, and as we consider the pattern and the paradigm here, the first of these Exodus experiences is the one that you're probably, you know, if you think of Exodus, you know, Charlton Heston, right? You know, the Ten Commandments. That's the Exodus, roughly 446 B.C. The Israelites have been in, in Egypt in captivity and enslavement, mistreated for some 400 years. That's, you know, the, the first thing that we ought to, to think of there. The therein the Lord brings these plagues upon Egypt and the experience of the Passover. And Pharaoh lets his people go, but then he chases and pursues them into the desert. And then you have the parting of the Red Sea, right? All these things, the exodus, the deliverance. It's what Isaiah is alluding to here in verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea a path in the mighty waters who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. The Lord made a way for his people and a pit for the Egyptian army for the sake of his people. Well, okay, that was the first exodus. That sets the paradigm this demonstration of his great power, for another exodus is to come, and that's what Isaiah is pointing towards here. It's coming as he's writing in the 8th century B.C., anticipating events that are coming in the 6th century B.C. As his, the people had been warned, but nonetheless they turned their backs on the Lord yet again, and therein he sent the Babylonian army, the invaders, an utter desolation of the kingdom of Judah. The exiles hauled off in this horrific chapter in the people's history. I won't, just because there's young ones in the room, I won't even describe what, what some of that entailed. Being dragged off into exile into Babylon, therein setting up the stage for yet another exodus, another demonstration 
of the Lord's mighty power that Isaiah, even as he is saying roughly 200 years before the, the exile even takes place, he's telling you, and there's going to be an exodus. There's going to be another exile, and there's going to be another exodus. And he speaks to that in verses 14 and 15. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your king, that was the pattern, that was the paradigm of Exodus. That's the first two Exodus experiences pointing to the fulfillment, the one on the far, far horizon, the third Exodus experience that was coming, a greater Exodus to come that is so profound in its significance and what was going to transpire. And the demonstration of God's power was going to be so much greater, as great as all of that had been before. This was going to be so much greater and so much more transformative in, in, in terms of its effects that he actually goes so far. It's interesting to note what, what the Lord says there, and what's always interesting, I would hope, to note what the Lord says. But there in verse 18, when he says, remember not the former things. Now, those of you who've spent any time reading the the Old Testament, you know that that's a command that's given again and again and again and again to remember, to remember and remember and remember. And here he's saying, don't. Why? Well, it's not like literally forget all. It's not, it's meant to draw our attention to what's ha going to happen. It's going to be so profound, so earth-shaking, so transformative, so wondrous, so amazing, such a demonstration of my power that as comparative to how you think of what happened in the past, it's going to be like forgetting it because this is going to be so good and so astonishing. A greater exodus because I'm sending a greater deliverer, a prophet, a priest, and a king unlike any other before. This one to come is going to be everything that they were supposed to be and far, far more. He's going to be the one that is spoken of back in chapter 7, born of a virgin, named Emmanuel, translated God with us, of his father, of the line of his father David, whose kingdom will, will never end and be ever reaching, ever expanding. At the same time, he's going to be the servant, all of these things. And even as he comes forth from the nation of Israel, he will come forth not just for the nation of Israel, but for all nations, for all peoples. This deliverer, a far greater exodus deliverance is coming. This is the new thing in Jesus that ultimately is being spoken of here in Isaiah 43. That those events that he's speaking of there are, are pointing towards the coming of Jesus. This is Christmas. And if this is true, then it means that we Christians should be the most excited about the celebration of Christmas, or I should say more excited, more engaged with the celebration of Christmas than anyone else, because we know what it's about more than anyone else. More engaged, more setting an example, serving as models for the rest of the world because we know who this is about and what this is about. Now, of course, we can't do that. We can't 
serve as models and examples for the rest of the world and what Christmas is all about if we're taking our cues from the world as to what Christmas is all about, right? You can't lead the world if you're following the world. You can't do the same, you can't do both at the same time. It means we've got to be very wary of the commercialism and the materialism and the me-centeredism that's so much a part of it. But it doesn't mean you have to stuff your tree away or take down your Christmas tie. We can lead. We can lead in this because we see this is the most, this is a demonstration of God's great, great power. The Lord, again, in Jesus is doing a new thing in the demonstration of his power, more, more greater than anything we could possibly describe, is something to behold. That takes us to the next point, uh, the second point. Not just a demonstration of his great power, but a revelation of our great need. This is rather sobering here, but it's, it's, it's worth noting as, as well. Isaiah, in, in speaking of, of the, an exile and the need for an exodus, is speaking to a bondage, a deep bondage. He's speaking to something as far beyond just the physical experience, that which can be seen with, with the eye. Uh, he's speaking of something far beyond this, the, 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 in the, well, what a reporter, a, a journalist might say, oh, this is what I saw in the time there in, in your time in Egypt or your time in Babylon as far as the time of enslavement and mistreatment or the bonds, the shackles, the taskmasters, all of those things. This is far more, this bondage. All of that, horrible as it was, was actually, I'll put it this way, an external eruption of an internal trauma. As bad as all of that was, it was a reflection of a deeper spiritual bondage that led to that bondage and was exposed by it. The exile and the need for the exodus demonstrates, reveals to us the deep bondage of the human heart, the human soul outside of Jesus, outside of this greater deliverer to come. We even as believers, if in fact you're a believer this morning, a follower of Jesus, you still yet struggle in the ongoing battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Still, and it's too much for you. And sadly, many of us aren't even aware that we're in a battle, which is a terrible place to be, engaged with an enemy that's too much for you and you don't even know you're engaged. So we need this revelation we need this sobering revelation of our state, of our need. Angels. Let's talk about angels here for a moment. Angels, you, you know, you see them several instances in the, the uh, gospel narratives and the, and the uh, coming of Jesus into this world. Well, let's think in terms, especially, go with me to Luke chapter 2. Think in terms especially of, of the shepherds and their encounter with the angels and how they responded there as they appeared that night outside of Bethlehem. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. 
In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. You know, that's quite an expression. Not just, they're not just anxious, they're not just worried, they're not just scared. I mean, it's, it's the Luke is falling over himself trying to express this is what they were feeling. They were filled with fear. Now, why? Why are these men coming apart? Well, to be sure, I mean, this wasn't expected. This is something of a surprise. These, these, this angel's an un, uninvited, unannounced guest. Yeah, sure, that's fine. But what is an angel? He's a, a messenger of God. He's a mediator of the holy presence of God. And that's what these men are experiencing there in that field outside the little town of Bethlehem. And so they're undone. They're exposed, naked, spiritually naked before the almighty God. And they're coming apart. And that sounds awful. That's bad. No, that's good. That's not the worst thing that could have happened to them. That's the best thing that could have happened to them because it exposes their need for the child that has been born even unto them and even unto us that night in the city of David because they've been exposed, because their need has been revealed. And that's exactly what we need. Our need to be revealed. Our need is far greater than we know. My friends, this is why the Father had to send the Son. Because no one else was going to be able to pull us out of the pit. No one else is going to be able to dig us out of the rubble, including us. He had to send the Son. You see, Christmas, it's, it's a funny message. It's a dual message. It's really bad news and really good news. When you hear it all, it should take you down to the depths of humility and at the same time fill your soul with exuberant joy. Not one or the other, but at the same time. That's the wondrous, astonishing message of Christmas. As we see that in Jesus, the Lord is doing a new thing, revealing to us our great, great needs. So again, this is something we need to behold. But that, okay, that then takes us to the third and final point. This is a, this new thing is a demonstration of God's power. It is a revelation of our great need. And though, though that wasn't enough, it is also an affirmation, an assurance of his great purpose. Promises, purposes from the very, very beginning and before. Let me, let's go back to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, verses 18 through 21. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. Again, this is an affirmation and assurance of the Lord's 
greater purpose, his long promise, now finally, finally, finally in Jesus coming to pass. Now, in, in, in Isaiah's immediate context, again, he's writing in the 8th century. He's talking about things that are coming in the 6th century B.C. The immediate context, of course, is he's talking about the second exodus, hearkening back to the, their history with the first exodus, and saying, look, this next one, this next deliverance is not going to be through water, but through desert. And yet still, again, at every point, the Lord is going to provide for you, your creator, your sustainer, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of, of hosts him, himself. But again, he is pointing not just towards the, the, the near horizon, but the further horizon to something, the, the greater deliverer, the greater uh, deliverance in which every desert is going to be transformed. The whole of creation is going to be restored in the coming of this deliverer and his deliverance. Keep your thumb there in Isaiah 43. Go back with me to just Isaiah 2. From the very beginning of Isaiah's work you, or book here, you, you, he, there, you get hints of something big is coming. Chapter 2, verse 4. He will, shall he will shall judge, excuse me, he shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears and the pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Or moving over to chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. Again, something big is coming here. Something, a, 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 a cosmic creational restoration. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." Isaiah is speaking here of something marvelous that is coming, the undoing, the unworking of the vandalism of the fall. Of a cosmic healing that's coming. The, the, the redemption, the restoration of creation itself. This is part of his great, the Lord's great purpose in the sending of the Savior, the greater deliverer, deliverance. And tied to that, the restoration of the whole of creation is the renewal of the hearts of his people. They're inextricably woven together, bound together as, as one. Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 8. Go back and read that this afternoon when you get home. That just as surely as we, mankind, led creation, the cosmos, down into the pit of the fall, as we are raised up in Christ, creation's going to be raised with us, and its groaning will end finally, even as our groaning comes to an end as well. It's a beautiful, powerful picture, an astonishing thing that Paul, that Isaiah is, is speaking of here. 
And with the with the all these things tied together, with the redemption of creation, the restoration of creation, the renewal of our hearts, will come also the reordering of our worship. And this is what Isaiah is speaking of there in that last verse, verse 21. This is the ultimate goal that the Lord has in mind for all of this. The great, great good that he has in mind, our affections finely tuned as they're meant to be towards him. No more settling for the cheap counterfeit gods that we give ourselves and serve in this life. No more. Finally, finally, our hearts ordered right, our worship, our adoration, our trust ordered in the way it was meant to be. No more, no more settling. This is the assurance. It was long since promised, finally coming to pass. The greater purpose is finally coming to pass in the restoration of creation and the renewal of his people. I don't doubt, probably everyone here, is that when I just say St. Nicholas, at least you'll be familiar with the name. I don't know if you're familiar with the history of the real man of history. Uh, so let me just give you a quick bio uh, story regarding St. Nicholas. So we, what we, it's somewhat sketchy, but we do have some facts regarding St. Nicholas. He was uh, born to wealthy parents in the 4th century A.D. in what is today Turkey, that, that, that area. Uh, his parents died when he was relatively young. The money all goes to him. Uh, it's said that he just basically spent the early years of his life giving over those funds towards the care of the poor in his hometown. At a very young age, he became a monk, later on a priest, Later on, at a very, very young, astonishingly young age, I think around 20 years old, became a bishop. It's said, some of you may be familiar with this story, it's said that, that in the region that he was given oversight over, um, there was a, a family, actually it was a widower and his three daughters, who were so poor, so poor, that the father was actually considering selling his eldest daughter into slavery so that the other two would have dowries and something to eat. But he couldn't bring himself to do it. Nicholas hears of this family's plight and moves in. Now, it was, it's normal in such circumstances uh, in that part of the world in that time to when you only have but one set of stockings, something to keep your feet warm in the cold, cold winter months, uh, to, to hang them by the fire such that they would dry at night, to wash them out and then hang them by the fire uh, to dry at night. That's normal. What's not normal is to wake up in the morning and to find a gold coin at the bottom of said stocking. Well, that's exactly what happened with the eldest daughter because Nicholas had snuck in there and done this. And then as the story, the legend goes, it could be based in fact, uh, the same thing happened over the coming nights with the other two daughters as well. What is that about? Well, of course, that's partly, partly the answer to that question, what is that about? It is the, the, that's the roots of why we hang stockings in some way by the mantle in some way every Christmas Eve. That's where the, that's where the roots of all that go back to. But it's more than that. It's more than just the, the, the roots in the, of, of a holiday tradition. What St. Nicholas was doing there in the 4th century was living out the reality 
that the, of the Lord's greater purpose for the whole of creation and the renewal of his people. He's interested in a holistic redemption of everything, of his people and the whole of creation. So everything matters, and every part of our being matters. The spiritual, the psychological, the physical, the relational, all of it, and all the brokenness matters. And so if subjects of the king, with that in mind, need to be thinking in terms of serving their king's interests, living for those purposes, followers of Jesus will do what? Well, they follow Jesus. Disciples walk in his steps. Therein, their hearts moved, thrilled, but engaged with the restoration of creation and the renewal of people's hearts. So where am I going with this? As far as this time of year, let me just be very specific, this time of year, what does all this mean for us? Can I just encourage you along these lines to pray that the Lord would give you eyes to see the need around you for redemption and renewal in the wholeness of all around us in this community, maybe literally next door, to give you eyes with which to see that, but not just that but hands and feet to move into it. The hands and the feet like St. Nicholas to move into it because of what Isaiah is telling us about this new thing that in Jesus the Lord is doing and that we must then behold. Well, let me go a little further in wrapping this up. You may be asking, but how... How can I behold this? You said earlier, it means peering in, it means looking into, it means considering, it means assessing, but how, how do I do that? Again, just going to suggest a very simple and seasonal answer to that question. Gift yourself. Gift yourself. Now, by that, I don't mean, just a clarifier, I don't mean the crass, materialistic, self-indulgent messaging that we get from the advertisers, and you don't have to, you just turn on the TV for, you know, 15 minutes this afternoon, and this is what you'll see, you know, where, hey, you've given enough this year, it's time to take care of yourself, you know, that sort of thing, like, like you deserve it, and this bunch of hooey. It's not what I mean when I say gift yourself. I'm speaking of the gift of time with Jesus. Gift yourself time. You want to know how to behold this? That was the question you asked. I'm answering it. Gift yourself time with Jesus. Being still. Being quiet. Opening his word. Spending time in prayer. Perhaps even time over the course of days. Not minutes days, spread out over days, in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, Luke chapters 1 and 2, the prologue to John's gospel. Gift yourself 
with time with Jesus such that you may be behold, able to behold. And then I'm going to take it a second step. Find ways to gift others that way too. I'm going to speak to the young couples in this room. Young marrieds, husbands, fathers in particular with young children. How can you gift your wife, the mother of said children, in this way? Gifting her with time, with Jesus, that she might be able to behold him. Take that before the Lord. Gift yourself. Gift those around you. Find ways. Let's do something crazy. Let's do something outlandish. Let's do something that just the world says, what? And fit everything else around your relationship with Jesus in Advent, as opposed to Jesus forcing him in the nooks and crevices where you can find it into everything else. In Jesus, the Lord is doing something new. It is something to behold. Let's pray together. Lord, you have called us on every other occasion to remember and to consider. And here you say in a most astonishing way, don't remember, don't consider. Because this is so amazing, this is so wondrous, that it outstrips everything by comparison. As we see your power, as we see our need, as we see your purposes unfolding. Oh, we pray that you would help us to lead. Lead this community, lead this whole world in the celebration of Advent, of the coming of the Christ. We pray in your name. Amen.